The Bible reading uh, is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen, and if you have a Black Church Bible, it's on page 1506. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? It, and if you greet only your own people, 
what are you doing more what are you doing more than the others do you do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect okay let's let's pray our father in heaven oh, there's such wisdom here and who am i to speak and how how are we in half an hour to be able to possibly grasp everything here but we ask that you'd help us in the name of jesus uh, to understand and for you to do your work in our lives and in as much as your word is living and active and exposes us um, we ask for good surgery that will involve healing eventually that we may be lights shining in our world in jesus name amen um, all of us in our lives have people uh, who we want what's best for, people we're concerned about, colleagues, friends, family. And if you're a Christian and they're not, the thing that you'll be most con concerned about is that they would come to know God, uh, to call God their Father, uh, to know Christ as their Lord, to be filled with the Spirit, um, not just so that they would escape the coming judgment, but so that they would know him. Most of us, therefore, can't help wishing that it would be wonderful if only we could shine a little bit more brightly, <laughs> so that when we ask them, for example, to read the Gospel of John, <laughs> they'd say, yes, because I've seen a difference in you, and yes, <laughs> I want to find out. How do you shine brightly? Well, what we've heard read just now is Jesus' answer to our longing to shine more brightly. This is his mission instructions to his disciples, teaching us how to let our light shine before others so that, verse 16, they will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. These are the words before us. Jesus tells us this is how you are to live such distinctive lives before others that they will be attracted, they will be caused to wonder why you are so different, and that themselves, that will generate opportunities for witness. So if we're wondering, well, how do we do that? What does that look like? It can sometimes be helpful to have a real-life example, um, like this guy, Eddie Wu. Now, Eddie was in Adelaide two weeks ago. City Bible Forum ran a conference exactly on this topic, how to be distinctive. Um, Eddie is an ordinary Christian. He is a maths teacher. Okay. And when a, one of his students became sick in a long-term way, he thought, as a Christian... Instead of just thinking they're sick, they'll fall behind, he would go the extra mile. And so he videoed uh, his lessons for this student and then sent them to the student. The student thought, thought that they were so helpful that they then started sharing them around. And pretty soon, Eddie was a sort of internet sensation. And he was picked up by the media and suddenly made a young Australian of the year. And uh, he commended Jesus through what he did in his workplace, just going the extra mile because he was a Christian. I bet that each of us who follow the Lord Jesus wish that we could do something like to shine as brightly as Eddie Wu, or at least a little bit more brightly than we currently are, so that people would see that we're different, would be attracted, and when we ask them, do you want to read the John's Gospel, they'll say yes, because there's power. Uh, there's power in seeing a transformed life and not knowing what makes it like that. Well... If that's you, if you want to shine a bit more brightly, Jesus' answer is to say, let me teach you. 
because Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus' teaching, which is all about how to live that distinctive life to shine brightly in the world. Except, if you were listening carefully, you may have become a little frightened. Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This isn't just an evangelistic sort of teaching. This, is, this has salvation impact, doesn't it, for us? Boy, oh boy, you will certainly not. He's emphatic here. There's no way you've got a chance of a snowflake in hell entering the kingdom of heaven. That sort of doesn't work, does it? Um, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then as we read, we discover that the righteousness Jesus requires is very deep. It enters our thought world, doesn't it? It's on that level. So anyone who hates, anyone who lusts is in danger of hell. And then to top it off, in the last verse, Jesus sums it all up with a very simple command, be perfect. Oh, great. Who on earth can do this? Now, obviously, Jesus knows we're not perfect. Look at how he begins the sermon. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not their own, but because they know their own is so grossly inadequate, but they long to be different than what they are. This is the person who, you know, echoes David's words, against you, you only have I sinned, and they know it, but it's true for them. This is the person who stands with a tax collector and beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That sort of person for whom forgiveness is not just a head need, but a felt need, it's they need it like the air they breathe or the water they drink. That sort of person, Jesus says, is blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So when he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't get into heaven. What sort of righteousness is he talking about? Clearly, it's not kind of sinless perfectionism, never doing anything wrong sort of righteousness. Because next chapter, when he teaches us to pray, he, says, he teaches us to say, Father, forgive us our sins. So he knows we're sinners. So what's this righteousness which we must have? This righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees? It can't be, you know, our own internal righteousness. What is it? It is Christ's righteousness. And he hints as much in verse 17 when he says... He has come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So that every command, every law in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled perfectly, not just obeying the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. So that when we put our faith in him, the perfect one, the sinless one, his perfect righteousness becomes ours. And that's why, of course, he had to be baptized and tempted, which we did a couple of weeks back. He didn't need to be baptised for his own sake, right? Sinners are those who get baptised to turn to God. Jesus wasn't a sinner, he was sinless. Why did he get baptised? He got baptised to identify with sinners, to stand with us, to be one of us. He didn't... Uh, so, and then having identified with us, sorry, he then, of course, went out and faced temptation greater than any that we'll face because at whatever point we gave in, he didn't. And he just kept on being true to God, as the temptations upped in ante and he kept holding out. Where we failed, he didn't. And what that means for us is that when he therefore went to the cross, his death could really work for us. 
He wasn't being punished for his own sins. He was sinless. But because he's identified with sinners, he could stand in for us. He really was punished in our place. His sinless life was offered for ours. So that when people like you or I, who long for mercy from God, when we long for a righteousness, not our own, and we reach out to him for it, our Father gives it to us. Christ has paid for all of the sins. Christ's perfect righteousness covers us. And it is totally effective because we heard it from Jesus himself. If you mourn, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? That's the righteousness which we must have, greater than that of the Pharisees that tries to come with from within. Christ's righteousness. Except, if you read straight on from verse 20 to verses 21 to the end, it seems like Jesus is speaking about how we're to live. So when he says you've got to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and you ask, well, what does that look like? And you read what comes next in the very next verse and onwards. Jesus seems to be talking about us needing to have a righteousness that's seen in our own lives. We said, hang on, but haven't we just said it's Christ's righteousness that we must have? Yes. So why does Jesus then go on saying how we're to live as if that's the righteousness we need? And why, when he's explaining this, does he warn us about hell if everything's honky-dory with us and God? Well, the answer is that Christ's righteousness must work itself out in our lives. Uh, if it's accepted, it will. It cannot do otherwise. So that we, we cannot be saved by our works, that's true, but neither are we saved without them. They are the necessary fruit of that which God does within us. Acceptance of Christ's righteousness must come out in our lives. In theological terms, the righteousness, if you like, that Jesus is talking about here that we must have is justification and sanctification. Both things happening at once. Christ's righteousness given to us, but which transforms us and then bears fruit. It's seen outwardly in our life. You see it in the Beatitudes, this inner outward movement. Uh, in the first Beatitudes, they're the kind of inner convictions about ourselves, being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But then it shows outwardly, doesn't it? Relating to others, being merciful, being a peacemaker, being persecuted because of our outward righteousness. And that's how it's meant to go, inner, outer. Christ's righteousness shining out through us. That's what makes us lights of the world, not because we've got a great light within us ourselves, it's because Christ is the light of the world and he can shine out through us. That's the whole premise of what Jesus says when he says, let your light shine before others. Christ's light changing us, shining out through us. Now, okay, that sounds very powerful, doesn't it? Um, so all of this must therefore just come naturally, right? There's no need for rules, there's no need for teaching, no need for laws, certainly no need for the Old Testament commandments, which the Pharisees made so much of, because grace makes no demands, right? If Christ's light is in us, won't it naturally shine? Well, what do you think? Sometimes. But we all have the human depravity factor, don't we? We need to be taught. 
And Jesus corrects us when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And the precise reason why he says, do not think that I have come to do this is because he knows that that is exactly what every disciple will think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the law will by any means be abolished until everything is accomplished. The everything meaning all the people whom he wants to see saved through you shining out his righteousness in your life, all that has to happen and you'll need teaching along the way to make it happen. Got it? Okay. Um, and then he teaches us we need, to be t- uh, we need to know how to let our light shine. And lo and behold, the Old Testament is a very good place to start. So that anyone who teaches, who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to shine at all. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. They will shine. They'll be effective. Now, it's important to say this because we say we're Gentiles, we're saved, we're not under Jewish law, that's true. But it doesn't mean that we therefore set aside everything in the Old Testament as being irrelevant to us now and irrelevant to how Jesus can teach us and we set it aside because we don't need it to teach us. We do. Okay. What's Jesus' goal for us in teaching us? He spends the rest of the chapter, verses 21 to 48, teaching us. Let's go to right at the end where we see the goal, where he says, verse 48, be perfect. Now, we've already said, hang on, that's impossible, isn't it? (laughs) But maybe we're thinking about it the wrong way. It's not sinless perfectionism that Jesus is talking about. The word perfect is the Greek word telos, which means completion or goal. And neither does just Jesus say just be perfect. He says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we think, well, that doesn't add anything to it because isn't God our Father perfect in every single way? Ah, Jesus is speaking in a nuanced way and Um, You have to look just beforehand to see what God the Father does and in what way he wants us to be perfect as God the Father is. God the Father, we read, loves his enemies. He is the one who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is the perfection, that's the end goal that Jesus wants us to get to. To be able to love our enemies in the same way that God, our Heavenly Father, loves His enemies. He does good to them every single day. Do that and you'll increase your brightness. Do that, your light will shine. Do that, people really will wonder what's different because you will be distinctive. And then people really will listen to what you you tell them about Jesus because there's power in that righteousness shining through. It's so unnatural to do this. They'll see it. It is so good. They'll see it. They'll be wondering about it. And then, finding out about Jesus, they'll give praise to God in heaven. Now, here is a photo of a man I met at Melbourne Airport last October. That's us sitting in a cafe in Melbourne Airport. Sahir. He was once a Muslim man, a Muslim imam in Sierra Leone. He is now a Christian in Australia and an outstanding Islamic evangelist. Now, the story of him coming to faith is astounding, but I don't want to tell his story. I want to tell the story that he told me about his dad, who became a Christian. 
His dad was a strong Muslim. He was a government minister in Sierra Leone. But in 1991, the civil war started, and his dad was... He went into hiding. He, he was betrayed by people whom he thought were his friends. He was then taken, separated from his family, um, beaten, tortured, and imprisoned for 25 years, during which time he thought that all his family were dead. He was only released 18 months ago. When he was released, this guy, Sahe, uh, who's now in Sydney and studying at Sydney Missionary Bible College, connected with his dad on WhatsApp and led him to Christ. It wasn't, very, it wasn't easy because his father was very bitter about Jesus because it's when Jesus turned up in his family, that is when Saha became a Christian in Sierra Leone, that things went wrong. The civil war started. He was betrayed. He was separated from his family. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. But Saha was able to say, hang on, Dad, you do realise none of your family lost their lives in the civil war. He said, how many of the other former government ministers are still alive? He said, none. How many of their family are still alive? None. How many of yours are still alive? All of them. Can you see how Jesus kept you and your family safe, ironically, by placing you in prison for all that time? He realised that and he became a Christian. But remember the friends who betrayed him. With the change of government, they were out of power and now they were thrown into prison and they were sentenced to be executed because of what they'd done to this guy's dad. right? And their only hope was if this guy's dad changed the conviction and let them off and had mercy. So this guy's dad rings him on WhatsApp and says, what do you think I should do? So Saho says, well, what do you think you should do? given that Christ died for you so that you could receive mercy and have your life spared. So the day came for the execution. I was riveted, right? <laughs> the day came for the execution. Uh, this guy said his dad came into the compound. There are soldiers standing there with Kalashnikovs, um, AK-47s, and they're pointing them at these guys who are on the ground, on their knees, with bags overhead, and their family are around, and all the family are crying out loud, right? Weeping, you know, sobbing. Highly charged moment. He said one of the soldiers could have just let loose. Anyway, his dad comes in, grabs the microphone and says, if it was up to me, I'd have you killed. But Jesus Christ gave his life for me, so that I could be spared and saved. And because I know God's mercy in my life, I cannot have these men killed. You are free to go. Take them off. Let them go. And they did. Outstanding, right? Letting your light shine before men. This is Christ's righteousness, can you see, shining through his disciple. This is letting your light shine before men, that others may see your good deeds and praise God in heaven. Loving your enemies. That's the goal that Jesus wants us to get to. Now, that's a really extreme example, right? I said, this doesn't happen in Australia, right? <laughs> Not like that. Have you written it up? No, you should. You should write it up. Anyway, but you and I know, of course, that we have enemies. We have people who've done us harm. We have people who we naturally don't get on with, who we regard as difficult and who we'd rather not spend any time with. 
to love them, to do more than what other people do on this, to do good to those who persecute you, is as a natural act that any person can do. It goes completely against the natural grain because our natural grain is to pay back like for like when we are hit to take revenge. That is just what we are hardwired to do. And Jesus says, don't do it. Love your enemies. How? <laughs> That's the end goal, the completion we want, he wants to get us to. How do you do it? How do you even start? Let Jesus teach you. In Matthew 5, it's usual now to look at all the different topics that Jesus mentions here one by one and delve deeply into them and that would be profitable and if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you've sat through many sermons on this. Given that loving your enemies is the end point goal, it makes sense to think that Jesus was probably smarter than we give him credit for and that he is helping us get to that point. There's a progression, in other words. Because to do the good of loving your enemy, you first have to stop doing the wrong of assassinating them in your mind, killing them. And that's why Jesus begins with, do not murder. Because he wants us to stop doing that wrong so we would get to do the good. Because what is murder? Murder is to say, you have no value to me at all. And every real act of murder begins in the mind, begins with the thought. You see, if I don't want you in my life, I can decide to get rid of you. I have a murderous thought. I write you off. And then I either tell you I hate you, or if I'm more sophisticated, I just murder you by ignoring you. I act as if you don't exist, as if my life were better without you. You see what I'm doing? When I feel hate or anger towards you, I'm saying in my mind, I wish you were dead. Married couples can end up saying that statement to each other at least once, if not twice a week. <laughs> Perhaps not out loud, but in our hearts. We can think it of the people we work with, our flatmates, our parents, our kids. In fact, it's most, o whoa, it's most often the people closest to us that we think it. Because the closest, closest someone is, the more inconvenient they are to us, the more they get in our way. That's why we say, get out of my way. What we mean is, I wish you were dead. And to think that, Jesus says, is to murder them. And Jesus is right when he says murdering like this puts us in danger of the fire of hell. Why? Because to murder someone in our hearts is to turn completely against God who has made that person in the image of God. That's the difference between us and animals. There are one or two other differences. They are more furry than we are. For some people. Not, not if you have a beard. But the one difference between ourselves and the animals is that you and I, not just because we're Christians, but because we are humans, are made in the image of God. We are God's representatives on earth. And that is our great responsibility. And so what we have to do when we say we love and respect God is to love and respect those people who have been made in the image of God. So we have to stop assassinating them or murdering them in our minds, which is to say, your life means nothing to me, actually less than nothing. Okay, so you're working on that. 
not killing people when you think of them, right? What's the next step? Well, the next step is to address lust. Because what is lust? Lust is taking, isn't it? It's taking someone else, someone else made in the image of God, taking an image of them, that someone, of, of someone who doesn't belong to us, and then using and abusing them in our mind for our own selfish gratification. So if we're working at not murdering people in our minds, the next step is to stop taking people and using them for our own gratification. That's so selfish. So Jesus takes the Old Testament commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and he teaches us how to stop doing the wrong so that we can then do the right. And the, the application is radical action in both, both cases. If you're tempted to murder someone, you've got to go and be reconciled with them. Drop what you're doing, go and be reconciled. Even if they have something against you, but you don't necessarily have something against them, go and be reconciled. Work it out. Settle your matters quickly. Stop murdering. And then with lust, you've got to take radical action. Jesus says you've got to cut off your arm, you've got to pluck out your eye. A woman once said to me, there should be a lot of one-eyed men in heaven. <laughs> but of course, it is hyperbole. Because not having eyes won't necessarily get rid of the thoughts, will they? It begins up here. But what he's saying is you've got to take radical action. Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the computer. Stop doing it. Be accountable. Take radical action. Surgery on your own life. Because how you treat them ends up reflecting how you think about God. And so now we're working on our inner thoughts, not assassinating people, not taking them for our own gratification. The next step is to move on to being faithful in real-life human relationships. We're trying to get our thought life sorted out over here. Now it's coming out. We're talking about real relationships that you have with real people. So what do you do now? Well, the first place to start is the person with whom you have the closest human relationship. And if you're married, that's your spouse. And Jesus says, don't divorce them. Stay with them. Be faithful in that relationship. Keep your promises in that relationship. And now you're working on that. You think, okay, I'm, I'm dealing with thoughts, marriage, okay. Now he says, apply that wider. Be faithful in your other human relationships. Let your yes be yes. Don't take oaths because you won't need to take an oath because you're renowned as someone who is trustworthy you're a person of integrity. You're a person in whom others can put their trust. They'll, what you say is what you get. If you say you'll do something, you'll do it. You keep your promises. You're a faithful person. Don't take oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. What's next? Well, okay, that's good if people are being faithful to you, but what if someone does you harm? What about people who, who aren't faithful to you? Um, well, Jesus says... If someone does you harm, don't take revenge. And that is very difficult, isn't it? Because it is ingrained in our sinful nature that when someone strikes me, I will strike them back. It's reflexive. If someone hurts me, I want to hurt them. And it's true for all of us. You know, Moses' command, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that was a command, yes, it's in the Bible, it was a command given to prevent the escalation of sin. You know the tendency, if I, if I hit you on the face, you want to hit me back with a sledgehammer, right? Escalation. And this command was there to limit 
the damage that sin does. You know, if you're going to take revenge, limit it fairly, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, Jesus takes this command which was designed to limit the um, damage that sin does and he pushes it even further. He says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone asks you for a cloak, give him your tunic as well. That is, if someone harms you, show them mercy and show them generosity. And we think, how can anyone possibly do that? And the answer is, you go to the Beatitudes. It's through appreciating the mercy and generosity that God has shown each of us that we then can show mercy and generosity to others. You have to be, be a person who realizes, God, you've treated me not like I deserve. You have been kind to me in a way which is foreign. You should have punished me, you haven't. You have to be someone that dwells on this. And then that will come out. And all of this is necessary to get to the end goal of actually loving our enemies. Go back to the story of Sahir's dad, this guy, right? The story doesn't end with him having his enemies set free. The story's ending is so riveting that I almost lost, uh, missed my plane. So I was one of those people in the airport where they say, Chris Jolliffe, come to gate 16, you know, uh, boarding is now completed. But I didn't hear it. I was three gates down in a cafe and they had to ring me on my phone. This has never happened. Normally I'm right there, you know. But the story was so engaging. Um, you know, they had to ring me on my phone. They said, where are you? And I said, three gates down. They said, run. So I ran. And then, you know, they'd just gone through all the board, you know, the flight clearance, boarding, check, whoosh, on, seatbelt, off we go. Um, so what happened in the end was that not only had his dad uh, had these guys' lives spared, but now his dad was reconciled with them. No, more than that, now his dad was cooking for them. He was inviting them into his house, the people that had caused him to be separated from his family and imprisoned and tortured for 25 years. He was having these guys in his house with their families cooking for them so that then he could read the Bible with them. Unbelievable, right? That's why it was almost worth missing a plane for. Wow. That is a light that is shining, Christ's light shining through to the glory of God the Father. You know, it's one thing not to strike back. It's a completely supernatural thing to love the person who has treated you as an enemy, who has said terrible things to you and done terrible things to you. And the reason we're to be like this is because this is who God is, the God whom we belong to. It's who He is. He's the Lord who loves His enemies. It's what He is sincerely like. Every day He makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every single day the sun doesn't come up by itself. It is an act of love of God the Father to people who treat Him as an enemy. And he makes it shine on both, those who do good and those who do evil. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you see what this means. You are not going to be selectively warm and loving. You'll be someone who rejoices in being persecuted for Christ's sake because he, he is the answer to the world. He is the light of the world. And if you represent him, there is nothing better you can do. 
You will be the person who prays for those who persecute you. Only Christians can do that. How can we do that? Because our love is not controlled by our niceness or their deservingness or what we're going to receive in turn. It is controlled by the love we know we have have received from Christ. You see, receiving the love of Christ in my life makes me the freest person of anyone in the world. I don't have to justify myself anymore. I'm free from having to retaliate. I'm free from the dreadful pursuit of trying to make myself lovable. What a burden that is. I am free now to love other people. So let me finish with two questions. The first is in verse 47. It's Jesus' question. If you look at that verse, he says, What are you doing that's more than all the others? What more are you doing than all the others? It's a good question, isn't it? Every single one of us has people in our lives who've treated us as enemies. Those who've demanded our coat, people have ridden on our generosity, people who've persecuted us. Jesus is not encouraging us to allow what is illegal or to allow ourselves to become a doormat. What he's saying is that he's calling for a radical, a personal, an active, a different love. And if you belong to Jesus, you have a new heart, you have a new Lord, you have a new life. We do not take our standards from the crowd. We don't take our virtues, our decisions, our morality from our community or our culture, but from Christ, the Son of God. And he asks each one of us, what are you doing that's more than all the others? You see, we're meant to be different. And second, where does the power come from? How can we do this? The answer is the ability comes only from Jesus himself. Jesus, you see, we know, he's not asking us to do anything that he didn't perfectly fulfill himself. He was completely unrighteously arrested. He was taken from his family, beaten, abused, tortured, flogged, and mocked. And you remember how he didn't retaliate How on the cross, when they drove nails into his feet and his hands, you remember what he prays, and the Greek tells us he he prayed it, he kept praying it. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They had no idea what they were doing. You see, we don't have the power to change ourselves. We look within, we're exposed, we fall short. But Jesus promised to us, is that if we mourn over our sins, not only will we be comforted, but all those who also hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed and they will be filled. You will be filled with a righteousness that is not your own, with a righteousness that comes from Christ, His righteousness shining through you. Father in heaven, we need to be taught. It is one thing to accept Christ, but it is another thing for our whole person to be reprogrammed, to be like you, Heavenly Father. And so we pray that you'd give us grace and perseverance to keep working on this, to stop doing the wrong that we may do the good, to be faithful in our relationships, not to take in our mind, not to murder in our mind not to take revenge, but to be generous and merciful and to do what's most unnatural, to love 
our enemies. We pray this, that others would see our good deeds and find out about Christ and come to give praise to you, our Father in heaven. May it be true of us. May this church shine. May each of us shine to your glory. Amen.